old teachers never wait, they never start until everyone's kind of ready. And I want to tell you I'm very glad to be invited back here. And I need to report that I have finally met face to face your pastor, Ryan Spooner. Because it seems to be every time I came, he was away. And now we got a twofer. Both he and Keith are gone. So I'm feeling sort of like the middle school substitute teacher that you used and abused. You remember that way back when, right? So that's how this works. But delighted to be here with you all this morning. Uh, one of the things that I want to do is start with a kind of rather broad introduction because I realize we're in the middle of a no topic session. So I have to introduce why we're doing what we're doing. And I'm starting with an observation. The observation is this, that we live in the age of the story. Say it one more time. We live in the age of the story. It's not always been this way, but I want to suggest that this is the hotshot meme in the terms of the way in which culture is communicated to and from people within our era. Uh, it's not always been like this, and of course, I want a brief overview. In medieval times, the way culture happened was primarily through morality plays. The church would organize people, they would come on carts, they would put on a play, and folk would realize, because most of them were illiterate, what the Bible said by virtue of people acting out stories in the Bible. That worked out about 1400, 1500, with the use of morality uh, tales. You remember Chaucer, the Canterbury Tales. And therefore, the idea of speaking a story as a way to illustrate some particular truth became the particular way in which, at least in English culture, that kind of thing communicated. Morality tales worked into dramatic plays. You'll remember the Elizabethan period where Shakespeare's comedies and tragedies all had some kind of point to them. Believe me, I know, I taught them, you see. And that, of course, worked because the Victorian age didn't like drama. They closed down the theater. So what happened was the primary way was by virtue of lectures. Lecture halls were developed. And if you didn't have enough money to hire one of those, you got your soapbox out in the middle of Hyde Park and you held forth. And lectures were the primary ways in which people learned what was important. That moved into, with the advent of the printing press for common people, into various kinds of serial novels. Some of you remember way back when that The Tale of Two Cities came out chapter by chapter, week by week, and people hung on waiting to see what was going to happen next. David Copperfield, same way. Charles Dickens made his move that way. And when you get to the 1800s, early 1900s, this stuff became kind of the part of novels or short stories that were particularly the way in which culture was driven and basically people basically brought a group of people together. The fascinating thing is in the last 100 or 150 years, it's been the use of story again by use of various technologies, movies, televisions. Now, in fact, Mark Zuckerberg has been known to say that pretty soon Facebook communities will take the place of the church as the means of providing social dynamics between groups of people. I don't agree with him, but that's what he's saying. And that the story, which was the paramount means of communicating stuff back and forth in Jesus' day, all of a sudden has become startlingly relevant to the way in which we communicate to people today. Folk are going to hang around to have a lecture. But they will listen to a story. 
We live in the age of the photo op, the blog, the tweet, the image, the icon, the spin, the impression. And suddenly, it's the stories of Jesus that take on new relevance in terms of speaking to people who are either apathetic, atheistic, or agnostic. In case you think you wandered into a history of English lit class, one more point of orientation or introduction. I want to suggest that all stories, so all good stories, in the micro-narrative have resonance with the meta-narrative of God's great story. Because the Bible is called good news, gospel. And all stories are facets of this enormously complex diamond of what God's doing in the world. And as such, and you note it on your outline, all good stories have four what I would call operational elements. The first is they have an association with stuff around them. There's a context for the story. We'll look at it in terms of Jesus' story in just a minute. Unless you understand the context of the story, you'll miss the whole point. Secondly, all stories work by virtue of abstraction. The author takes stuff that he thinks is important or she thinks is important out of reality and emphasizes it. Stories abstract the common stuff of all reality to one or two particular points. Thirdly, all stories work by analogy. They drive the audience to a particular point. If this, then that. And finally, all stories, all good stories, have a point of application. The authors want your audience to think, feel, and do something as a result of a good story. Now, with that extended introduction, that background, I want us to read our story because we're going to use that as a way to explain what Jesus is about. I'm reading Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 29. You follow along with me, okay? Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew, and the heat and beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Great story. Now, in case you miss it, I'm one of these people who want to get you the main point right away. and It's right on your outline. I'm suggesting that Jesus wants us to understand three things about us and him. The first is that like Jesus, we are all builders. In other words, we are called upon to create structures that will help us endure the times of stress in our life. In Jesus' point of view, he says there's only one or two kinds. There's either wise or foolish ones. We're all builders. Say it with me. We are builders. We are builders. There's a test at the end. Old teachers never die. They just turn everyone into their class. That's the way it works, you see. Secondly, we are all battered. Storms of life come upon us, whether we're wise or foolish. 
Say it with me. We are all somewhere along the line, friends. Hard times will come. Guarantee it. Thirdly, we are by or ought to be by focused. In other words, we are people who, if we're good builders, ought to see beyond the surface of things to things that are unseen or things that are beneath the surface. Now let me unpack this a bit according to what Jesus is about. Jesus concludes his inaugural message. Typically it's called the Sermon on the Mount. And he uses this illustration, this story, as a way to conclude. So some of you have read this in the past. Some of you may have not. Here's the brief 30-cent overview of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is making a, a contrast between the way he wants to live life and the way he wants his disciples to live life and the way the rest of the people do. And it, repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, my kingdom is different than all the other kingdoms around. And he does this in three ways, three ways to be able to understand the Sermon on the Mount. First, he emphasizes how they can know that they're blessed by God. And what he does is he inverts what you would expect. He says you're blessed by God if you're poor. You're blessed by God if you sorrow and mourn. You are blessed by God if you hunger for righteousness, not expediency. You're blessed by God if you have an orientation toward mercy. You're blessed by God if you have some desire for inherent purity. You're blessed by God if you're a peacemaker. And ultimately, he says, you're blessed by God if you get persecuted for doing the right stuff. That's not the way in which we would expect things to work. But Jesus says, blessed are you if these things happen. Why? Because God's the one who's going to come meet your needs. As a result of that state of happiness or blessedness, Jesus says his people, his followers, are called to one of two, maybe both, stations in life. They are salt and they are light. And the analogy we won't spend a lot of time on, but salt basically preserves and it enhances thirst. And people who follow Jesus are salty people because they preserve a decaying culture and they create a thirst for another sort of life. And secondly, we are called to be light. We are people who illustrate and show the way to a kingdom that people don't often see. We portray a different world. Thirdly, as a result of this, there are a whole sense of sensibilities regarding the way in which life ought to work out. Sensibilities of morality. We should understand the connection between anger and murder. Not all anger results in murder, but all murder began as anger. Be careful what you do with your relationships. Not all adultery uh, can be explained by the fact that you lusted at first. Deal with the invisible before you understand the visible, is what he's saying. Uh, be careful how you speak, because oaths result in broken promises. Be careful somewhere on the right that you understand that instead of retribution, you ought to move toward revival. I'm just rehearsing what Jesus has said. And so forth. Don't hate, but love. 
Don't seek to do your deeds of kindness so people can see. Let them be done hiddenly so God can reward. And you recognize he's painting this picture of a kingdom that can't be seen versus the one that all of a sudden people see with physical eyes. He says, don't worry about earthly treasures. Worry about heavenly ones. Don't worry about things of this earth. And he says, finally, he gets to this point. He says, be careful what you say about Jesus. Don't call him Lord, Lord, unless you're really willing to, to, to follow him as Lord. Okay? Hence the overview, the association, the context for the story. So Jesus then finally comes around. Let me tell you what I'm really saying. I'm going to tell you this way. I'm going to tell you a story. And it's a story about two, the word is, builders. Now, to understand the simplicity and yet the genius of Jesus' storytelling, I need to remind you of some construction realities that folk in Jesus' day would have understood. I'll just highlight three of them. First is that houses were built during the dry season, when it was hot. Okay? In the middle of the summer. By the way, hotter than what it's out here. Hot, 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 okay? Secondly, houses were typically made either of stone or dried brick that had wood, because wood was scarce, as kind of uh, wall dividers and or roof stresses that then were overlaid with uh, some kind of grass. Because most of the time they didn't have to worry. But the straw never. You remember the, when the people came to bring their crippled friend to Jesus, they tore off the roof and they brought him down. It's, the houses were built that way. Third thing I need to say is that foundations required digging down because the hard packed clay was awfully hard to get at. And the result was, is you wanted to dig down to the clay, to whatever the substrata rock was, and make that your foundation. Now the key and understood point of Jesus' story is this, that the, both builders' finished product would look exactly the same. You catch the drift here. When the houses were finished, no one saw the hard work of the wise guy because it was hidden. Uh, illustration. A couple weeks, a couple months ago, I was part of a team of folk who went down to Gatlingburg, uh, Tennessee. And some of you remember last fall, there was a series of wildfires that took place. 800 homes were killed. The church that we worked on, Roaring Brook Baptist Church, was the only church that was decimated by the fire. The only one. And we were part of a group called Builders for Christ, and our job, we came the second week, and our cachet, the folk at Groton Bible Chapel, is we're great framers and tress, stress, truss layers. We, some of the folk walk like monkeys on top of this stuff. And one of the comments that the guys made there is that 80 to 90% of the work we did that week would never be seen. <laughs> because it was all being overlaid with something else. And you have to get to the point of this, that the hard work, the blazing sun, the work of laying plywood on top of stresses and trusses and all that stuff, putting up walls, nobody would see it. 
One of my jobs was to have this very long stick with a thing and put glue on the floor joists so that when the plywood was put down, it wouldn't squeak. Nobody's going to know that I missed or I didn't miss. But they know when the squeak happens. I'm getting to the point here, friends. How are you doing on the hidden stuff of your life? What are the foundations that no one sees of the way you do life? Or put it this way, who are you when nobody's looking? Oh, McCoy, all of a sudden you got, mm, I don't really want to answer that question, you know? Are you building on a secure foundation? Because Jesus moves quickly to the second point. We're not all just builders, but we are battered. <laughs> and you would understand how this works. Of course, the rainy season took place during the cold part, not the summer, but the cold part. And again, I need to re remind you of some of the stuff that folk in Jesus' day would have understood inherently. The rains would come in waves off the Mediterranean coast, would rise up the Palestinian mountains. And what would take place is that then the wind would dump down on some of the various streams, beds, and the wadis would turn into torrential downpours, maybe miles away from where the house is. And what would take place is the water would come through this stuff, and the house built on the rock stood firm because the rivers of water in those places would go around the rock. But the house that's built on the hard-packed clay, the rivers would go around and start to erode the clay. And you can understand what's happening at this point. All of a sudden, the foundation of either stone or hard-packed you know, brick starts to erode, and the wood stresses and trusses and all that stuff <laughs> crash down. The folk in Jesus' day had seen it happen. And all of a sudden, we get to this point that storms come. Now, the other association that Jesus' hearers might have had is a reference in Zechariah 13, 13, where he says, Therefore says the Lord God, I will make stormy wind break out of my wrath, and there shall be a deluge of rain in my anger, and great hailstones in wrath to make a full end. You know, what's basically their understanding is, is that God's wrath comes when we do dumb things. Not all the time, but sometimes. And their initial association would be that these storms come as a means to test a nation. But there's another way to view the storms that come upon us all. We live in a fallen world. And if you read the Bible carefully, you'll realize that the Bible neither explains the existence of God or the existence of evil. It's just stated as being there. It spends a lot of time describing what the interactions between God and Satan are. But it doesn't satisfy our curiosity to understand where they come from. I think there's some reasons for that absence, but they lie beyond the bounds of what we're talking about today. The point is that storms act as revealers of the prior hidden work of builders. 
Let me suggest five categories of storms that I wrestle with and maybe you do as well. The first is that storms can be caused by sinful behaviors, most evident. You do something dumb, the storms come in your life. All God's people will say, amen. That's what happens. Okay? Sometimes you fall on your, your face just in spite of it all. Whether personally or institutionally, storms come. Secondly, storms are born of sickness, some of which we contribute to, some of which we have no control over. Whether biological, genetic, environmental, physical diseases in various kinds wreak havoc upon our well-being. I don't know what your story is today. Some of you may be struggling with a cancer diagnosis. I know a lot about that. Some of you may have all sorts of other issues you're wrestling with, but physical storms come our way. Thirdly, storms can flow out of sorrows. A loved one could die. Something could happen that shakes you to your core. The storms can come as a result of status reversal. In other words, you lost your job and all of a sudden your identity is gone. Or maybe you lost something that you thought was precious, a relationship, and all of a sudden your status changes. And ironically, the flip side is also true. Storms may come because of success. Folk have looked at folk who ultimately made it up the ladder of success. When they get to the very top, the very people they depended on for support go away. They think they can do life on their own and crash. The storms come. It's one of the reasons why folk who win the lottery often end up being broke in a couple years. They don't know how to deal with success. What are the storms in your life? And I'm speaking very gently, if I can, this morning by saying that, among other things, we're all battered people. Somewhere along the line, things happen that you either didn't anticipate or tried to avoid or tried to ignore. Some of you know a little bit of our story, and one of the things that's happened is we've become open to the uh, community of parents who have lost kids. I was talking to one woman a month ago or so, and she says, I've lost my faith in God because a good God wouldn't have taken away my son. You see, the storms reveal the structure of life that we were supposed to build during one time but in the battered times we lose. Can I ask you, what storms are you facing today? And let me flip it just a tad around. What are the storms of some of the people you know that they're facing? Can I tell you that one of the great pastoral issues of our day is that churches and people who attend them ought to be folk who are sympathetic to folk going through difficult times. It provides a connection that oftentimes the rest of the community doesn't know how to deal with. Storms provide us a means to connect with our neighbors our friends, our workmates, etc. Which, of course, gets me to my third big point. As a result of that, we need to be bi-focused people. We need to see both the visible realities and the invisible realities of life. 
a rock-solid foundation that Jesus offers that's mostly hidden from view provides stability amidst the storms of life. Now, here's the big point. If you forget everything else, learn this. The foundation is not Jesus. Some of you will say, oh my goodness gracious, he's preaching heresy. I want you to say it with me again. The foundation is not Jesus. It's doing what Jesus says. <laughs> Both builders hear Jesus' words. Only one puts them into practice. The foundation of the good builder is the person who puts what Jesus says into practice. Right now, we're in a hearing mode. You're attending, and hopefully the Spirit of God's kind of doing his thing in your life as a backstory, because I'm only talking at 100 or so words a minute. And you can attend up to 800 to 1,000 words a minute. So the Spirit of God's got plenty of time to kind of mess around with your head while I'm speaking, correct? There's this interior monologue going on. You're hearing today. The success or failure of what happens isn't in the hearing. It's in putting it into practice. And the stability that comes in life is the daily practicing what Jesus says. Because Jesus is portraying a kingdom, a way of life, a doing life that's different than all the other kingdoms of the world. His kingdom is real, but it's not immediately visible. Its kingdom is powerful, but doesn't have the trappings of power. His kingdom is eternal, but it seems weak and temporary. And Jesus, our king, is the king who ultimately died on a cross. His kingdom promotes grace, but surrounded by communities that are very ungracious. All God's people say, amen and amen. In fact, Jesus offers something that folk initially can't see. Most of his ministry took physical realities and said, you got to see past the physical reality to something else that's going on. A couple chapters over in Matthew, he says to Jairus, who Jairus thinks his, his daughter is dead. He says, no, your daughter's not dead. She's just sleeping. And Jairus says, that guy's crazy. But ultimately, Jesus sees something that's possible down the road that Jairus can't see. He talks to Nicodemus, that great learned scholar, and says, Nick, you need to get born again. And Nicodemus can't get past the physical. He says, I don't, I don't go back on my mother's womb. No, 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 no. You've got to get born of something you can't see. He talks ultimately to, to his disciples. And their crowds are pressing around them. And Jesus turns and he says, who touched me? And Peter says, what's wrong with you? Everybody's leaning on you. No, 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 no. There's only one person that touched me in the right way. <laughs> she touched with a touch of faith. You've got to see past the physical. He ultimately speaks to a woman at the well and says, if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask him for a drink. And she says, you don't have a bucket. And Jesus says, yeah, but you got to see past the well to the person who made it. And I want to give you water that will last forever. You see, understand, there's the physical reality, 
that we see with our physical eyes, but there's the bifocal, invisible reality that God longs to give us to see past all the stuff of life. A couple months ago, I was reading an article by uh, Rod Dreyer called How to Get People to Come to Church. That was just kind of interesting. And I, he wrote 10 observations of the do's and don'ts for prompting people to, to do church. I only want to list two because they fit what I think is important today. See? The first thing that Dreyer says is this, except that there's no such thing as a foolproof program to get people to church. There's no killer app that you can put on your cell phone. There's nothing you can do to make it happen. We are into technology and mechanics. And he says, yeah, that doesn't make it work. He says, what does make it work? Well, he has this. He says, 10% or 20% of Christianity is information. 80% is formation. It's the kind of people we are that attracts others to the church that we belong to. Or summed up in this interesting quote by Robert Wilkin, if Christian culture is to be renewed, habits are more important than revivals, rituals more edifying than spiritual highs, the creed more penetrating than theological insight, celebration of saints days more uplifting than observance of mother's day why we need to be connected to something bigger than our own selves intention is like a reed blowing in the wind it's in the doing that counts and when we do something for god he in turn comes and does it through us a final illustration and then we move to why we're here this morning Last three months, I've been teaching uh, a man named Pascal DeVoe how to swim. Pascal's 55. He's a mail carrier. He walks six, seven miles a day. But he grew up in France and, by his own admission, was petrified of the water. His wife and all their kids loved the ocean. We lived, he lives in Mystic. You've got to love the water in Mystic. I mean, you've got to love it. So he says, Bob, can you teach me to swim? I'm afraid of drowning. So we go to the pool. And I said, Pascal, you don't think so, but you can float. He says, no, 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 the water, I pick it up in my hands, it comes right through my fingers. It doesn't, it doesn't hold anything. I said, Pascal, put your hands, arms by your, your ears, like this, like that, and just push off a little bit. And Lo and behold, he floats. He says, I can't believe it. The water that doesn't seem to have anything to it can support me. But he couldn't see it with his physical eyes until challenged to see something past what his experience was. Friends, how do you see life around you? What lenses will you ask God to give you to see who the people are that he's working on? How will you prepare for the storms that batter you? How will you secure and build a structure of stability both within and without?
here comes the quiz. Because we are all, what? Builders. We are all battered. But we need to be bifocused people who see not just physical reality, but the invisible spiritual realities of life. Now friends, we're gonna do that. We're taking bread and cup. The meaning is not in the physical realities, but it's seeing through them. And the ritual of communion is meant to be a help that we do the same thing when we leave the building. And all God's people will say, amen. And it's what's true of communion is true of our community of relationships. We're just not mere people. If you know and love Jesus, we're brothers and sisters in the family of God. We're royalty. We're citizens of a new heaven and a new earth. Let's pray together. Now, Lord Jesus, thank you for this great story. Thank you for the encouragement it is to us to see ourselves the way you want us to see ourselves. Would you help us to build wisely? Would you help us to endure the storms, the battering of life? And in so doing, provide shelter for others who are being battered around us. And finally, Lord, would you give us eyes to see things the way you do, so that we would have a bifocal vision of not only ourselves, but of our world. We pray in the name of Jesus.